Let's begin our new series on marriage. I want you to turn to 1 Peter 1. There'll be some other verses that we'll work our way through this morning, but we're going to begin in 1 Peter chapter number 1. Now, when you think of passages in the Bible that speak to this topic of marriage, what are some passages, you don't have to name the chapter and verse per se, just name the area of the Bible or the phrase you remember, what are some passages of the Bible that might come to our minds that speak about this important topic of marriage? What are some passages that come to your mind when we think about marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife? I'm sorry, submission, Ephesians 5, right? Yeah, what else? You've been in Genesis. Was there a passage in Genesis about that, right? The first marriage in Genesis 2. Any other passages that come to mind about marriage that you might think of? That is actually not about marriage, but good, good try. We use it for marriage. It's actually about church division and love towards one another. But yes, it, is, it can be applied to marriage uh, very distantly. What about uh, Jesus' teaching on divorce? That actually teaches us something about marriage. Is there a book of the Bible that you can think of that is entirely about marriage? Song of Solomon, baby. Hey, we're going to be preaching through that one day, and it's going to be awkward and fun all at the same time. Song of Solomon, right? Now, here's the problem. Um, when we think about marriage, we think that it's really just those passages that speak about marriage. And I, I want to help you. This really kind of goes with our storyline series that we just wrapped up, that the Bible on purpose is not arranged as a topical self-help guide. We, we have to recognize the Bible is not arranged that way on purpose. The Bible is not a handbook of human problems and divine Solutions. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. It's a story. It's a story that is theologically annotated. So there's asides and comments about life and about God. But this means that if we want to understand marriage, we don't just look at the marriage passages, though we will. We look at the story and what that story teaches us about ourselves. Because all of us have a marriage that includes ourselves if we're married. And we have, we look at the passages that teach us about God because all of us have a marriage that requires God's help. And so in our story, uh, in our series, we're gonna cover the vast amount of biblical information that we often think applies to other stuff that actually also applies to marriage. Now I've said this throughout, there are some here today and maybe some uh, who may come throughout the series that are not currently married. They're widowed or uh, not married yet, and I want to encourage those of you who are not to listen to the series, because though we'll make a lot of application on marriage, we're covering biblical principles that have application to every area of life, and that's how we're applying them to marriage, and so there's something for you. In fact, in a lot of our handouts, you could probably cross out the word marriage and put relationships, and almost every principle would apply just the same. So if we're going to start on marriage, where do we start in this topic? Where do we start? Well, yeah, maybe we could start in Genesis 2. But I want to take a different look at it this morning and start looking at the context 
in which your marriage happens. Your marriage, unfortunately, has more factors at play than just you and your spouse. Your marriage takes place in a world that has circumstances that will affect your marriage. The significant health crisis that permanently affects your career. The busyness that comes from a demanding job that can challenge your marriage. The financial troubles that enter your life that would bring stress on a marriage. The secret sin that might be in the hearts of one or both partners in a marriage. The parenting difficulties that reveal the flaws of both mom and dad and reveal the selfishness of both mom and dad. So here's what we have to realize. If we read our Bibles carefully, if we study our scriptures diligently, that God prepares us to recognize that our marriages take place in a world that is not perfect. But though this world is not perfect, God has a purpose. And so this morning, I want you and I to cover three mindsets, three mindsets that will help you understand the context that your marriage takes place in. Here's the first major mindset. You're conducting your marriage in a world that is broken by sin. You could say, if you're not married, you're conducting your relationships in a world that is broken by sin. What do we know about the world that we live in? We use this term in our storyline series, but we live in a world that is between the already and the not yet. Write that down on your handout. We live between the already and the not yet. What's the already? God has already given us his word. God has already sent his son to die and rise again for our salvation. God has already, if you're a Christian, given you the spirit. God has already given you the power to overcome sin. But there are a lot of things about this life that are not yet. They're not yet complete in the plan of God. Our world has not yet been restored. Sin has not yet been eradicated. You have not yet been formed in the perfect likeness of Jesus. God has not yet gotten rid of all suffering and death. We live between these two realities. And in 1 Peter 1, Peter uses two different terms to characterize the, the, the point on the timeline you live in. Look at chapter 1 and verse 6. 1 Peter, he describes the world we live in. He says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, here's the, the, the words, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. He uses two words. He describes our world by heaviness and testing of faith. I think that's a good way to describe your life and my life. By the way, he says, this joy is not always what life feels like, but life takes place in the context of heavy things, of the testing of our faith. And then verse seven, he describes how this testing of faith is valuable. God, by design, puts us in a world that tries our faith, that does not make it easy to have faith in God. And he says in verse number seven, that it makes our faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. Why? that it might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Here's the reality, and I hate to break it to you. You can't escape this environment of heaviness and testing. You cannot escape it. By the way, if you think your marriage will be healthier when your circumstances are better, you're wrong. No. What 1 Peter and Romans 8 will tell us is that God has intentionally put you in an imperfect world to force you to address the things that make your marriage weak. God has put you in those circumstances to break you down and to test your faith and to refine your faith and to help your faith become better. Here's the second reality about our world. Um, God is using the circumstances of this broken world to achieve your personal holiness more than your personal happiness. I'm going to break it to you. And hang in with me. God did not give you a marriage to make you happy, ultimately. That is not his first and primary goal. Now, I happen to believe, I tell young people who are about to get married this, this, I say married life is the best life. It's a good life. And I don't mean that to slight those who aren't, but it is a personal joy. The Bible tells us that. But here's the problem with a lot of us is that we struggle in life because we think that the ultimate goal of life is to be happy. We are constantly viewing life through what I call a happiness paradigm. Here's a happiness paradigm. Can you see those words? The happiness paradigm is the mindset that most of us have that we desire our circumstances to lead to our happiness. And you can fill in the blank all sorts of things my financial circumstances, my health circumstances, my marital circumstances. And what we end up doing is if we view life this way, we get really frustrated and angry when those circumstances don't make us happy. And I just told you, Peter didn't say that this world is characterized by happiness and testing of faith. This is a world with heaviness, with bad circumstances. And so here's what happens. You will live life continually frustrated if you think it's your spouse's job to make you happy. If God somehow messed up because he gave you a spouse that doesn't make you more happy. God did not fail you, no. You just have a messed up mindset. How should we view our circumstances then? Well, the Bible gives us a different way to look at them. In Romans 8, verses 28, 29. What is God saying about our circumstances? Look at Romans 8. And we know that what? Some things? All things. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, you can't stop right there because the good is not defined on what you think is good because what we define as good is happiness. God is working for my happiness. No, he's not. (laughs) What he is working towards is verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's goal for all things in your life, every circumstance in your life, is not to make you happy, it's to achieve a different goal. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. He says this, we can be sure that every detail in our lives for God is worked into something good. 
God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. And I love the way he paraphrases the end of verse 29. He says, the son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives in him. And after God made the decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. And after he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. What is Romans 8 telling us about God's goal for our life? How is God using our circumstances? We should also instead take the holiness paradigm. What does that say? That God is using your circumstances not to immediately produce your happiness, but to produce your holiness, to make you more like Jesus. Everything in your life, first and foremost, is to make you like Jesus. Your sickness, your disease, your current financial status, the situation you're dealing with with your kids and your aunts and your uncles and your parents, your difficulties in your marriage, all of those, everything, everything you could possibly encounter is for the purpose of your greater holiness. Do we believe that this morning? We have to. Because here's the irony. True happiness, lasting happiness, comes after we embrace God's goal of holiness, then happiness is the result. That's why Jesus wasn't a liar when he said in his uh, kingdom beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed could loosely be translated happy. But all the things Jesus says are not the things we think make us happy. Poor, persecuted, hungry, meek. That doesn't sound very great. But what Jesus is teaching us, even in his Beatitudes, is that God, when we submit to his plan of holiness for our life, it is from that submission to a holiness paradigm that happiness then results, okay? So God's primary goal, first and foremost, is not your happiness. It's your holiness. That's why, friend, God often allows us to go through the most excruciating moments. <clears throat> because if Jesus is the example of the goal to which God is working in your life, I don't think Jesus had an easy life. Right? Sweat drops of blood? Hung in agony on a cross for hours? Despised and rejected by humanity? That, my friend, gives us a picture of what God is up to. He is forming you in the image of Christ, and it's through the suffering of Christ that we then receive the glory of Christ as we are transformed into his image. But here's what this, this view helps us with in marriage. It helps us to ask the right questions and to view life through the right lenses. Now, put that thought on hold, and I want us to go to our next mindset. You are a, a sinner, married to a sinner. You want to have a realistic outlook on marriage? You need to recognize you are a sinner married to a sinner. Both of you brought something destructive to your marriage. No, not your credit card debt that you, that you brought into your marriage. 
not your relationship baggage. No, what you brought in your marriage that will destroy your marriage, if not checked, is your own sin. It's important for us to recognize that the Bible teaches that we are not ultimately good people who do bad things. That's not how God teaches us to view ourselves. The right perspective on humanity is we are evil people corrupted by sin who occasionally do good things, right? Romans 3 teaches us this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If our sin has affected our relationship with God, as Romans 3.23 says, why would we think our sin should not affect our relationship with other people? Then Romans 7.18 tells us that this sin problem is not something you and I can fix. Paul says that in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me. I want to overcome it. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. See, the solution to our sin only comes through the personal acceptance of what Jesus did on the cross. And even though we receive Christ, we are still not delivered fully from this body of sin. And so here's the reality. Your sin, to some degree, will show up in your marriage. Your spouse's sin will show up and it will affect your marriage. And by the way, you contribute more to that pie than you probably give yourself credit for. You contribute a lot more to that pie than you give yourself credit for. So how do we respond to this reality of sinners being married to sinners? Real practically, this will help you in every relationship of life. Don't personalize sin that is not personal. Don't personalize sin that is not personal. Many of the ways our spouse hurts us, I think sometimes, because we are very insecure people, we think that every negative thing they do that makes us upset is intentional or personal. Now, maybe I'm blessed to be married to a less vindictive spouse than you. That's possible. But I would gather that most of you are married to somebody who doesn't set out each morning to make your life miserable. But yet, maybe you cannot nod on this one. Our spouse unintentionally makes our life harder or hurtful. But what happens a lot of times in marriage is that when our spouse hurts us, we immediately jump to the conclusion that they did it intentionally. But what I want to help you with this morning, and this helps you in every area of your life, is that most often people hurt other people not because they intend to and it's personal sin, but just because they're fallen people who do really dumb stuff sometimes. Let me give you an example. Maybe your husband is guilty of the sin of laziness. He does not help out like he should, which ultimately you and I recognize, wives, that that is rooted in a self-centeredness. And so you're tempted to say something like this. Well, he doesn't care. Aha, red flag should go up in your mind from this day forward. You have just personalized sin that is not personal. Your husband, it's not that he doesn't actively care about you. He's just a lazy bum who has indwelling sin. That doesn't mean we justify it. We'll get there in a second. So don't think I'm giving your husband a pass. Maybe men... Your wife struggles with the sin of anger. Some wives who have the sin of anger blow up. Um, I love what um, my pastor, Pastor Tyler, says. He says everyone in a marriage is either a spewer. Anyone married to a spewer? Don't, know, don't acknowledge it. 
or a stewer. By the way, anger is both. Stewing your anger is not any more righteous than spewing it. And so maybe your wife is given over to the sin of anger and the way that she displays that is through stewing on her anger. She gives you the silent treatment. And you might say, well, she doesn't respect me. But the reality is, is that your wife could be angry at a lot of other things that aren't you. And because she's a sinner, she doesn't know how to separate her relationship with you, with the trials of her situation, and she doesn't know how to not take out her personal burdens on everyone else around her. Now, hear me well. This will help you in every area of life. Everyone, eyes up here. This does not change your posture towards sin. This does not mean, husbands, you get a pass. Like my, my daughter famously says to me almost every time she gets in trouble, but dad, I'm a sinner. No, that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse, but here's how it helps us. It does change our posture toward that sin because when sin is personal, here's what we do. We want vengeance. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. But rather than taking it personally, we can turn moments that, that instead of using vengeance on our spouse, we help our spouse with their sin rather than just Um, helping them recognize their sins. Sometimes if we personalize it, we're adversarial in our response and they never really hear us. So here's what we need to do as spouses. If you're a sinner married to a sinner, here's how you respond. And this is probably, in my opinion, the most important part of the lesson. Look for solutions in your marriage that address the sin, not just the situation. That address the sin, not the situation. A lot of us approach marital conflict like two warring nations looking for a peace treaty, right? Imagine Israel and Hamas. Somehow they come to the table together, which probably won't happen. But let's say they do. (laughs) Who's gonna be like, now listen, Mr. Hamas leader, the reason this is an issue is because you have indwelling sin in your heart. And that is why you are doing these bad things. No, and when nations make a peace treaty, they're trying to find the best compromise of the situation, say, here's what you want, here's what I want, here's a middle. And I'm not saying that's totally a bad idea, but here's what I want to help you with, is that if your marriage boils down to always addressing the situation, you are leaving a lot of things on the table. You're leaving a lot of things on the table. What a lot of women want to do is they want to fix their husband. They want to mobilize him to clean the house or to wash the dishes or help take care of the kids like he should be doing because he's a lazy, self-centered bum. And so what they do is, how can I get my husband to do what he's supposed to do? Well, instead of addressing the sin of laziness in his heart, what they do is they power up and they try to control or manipulate. They say, well, let me show you. I'm going to be angry and I'm going to take it out on you so you get the hint that you need to be doing what I want you to do. Or sometimes what happens is a husband, to appease his wife's sinful problem of anger or resentment or self-centeredness, husbands try to manage the situation by following the advice that only works about 30% of the time, and it's the tried and not true advice called happy wife, happy life. That's good advice most of the time. Some of y'all older married people are like, this guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about because he's dishing on happy wife, happy life. That's a really great motto unless your wife is being selfish and sinful. Because last I checked, it was not my job to accommodate 
a selfish and sinful human. Are we in agreement on that? No. If I love my wife's holiness more than her happiness, if I care about what my wife will be like when she stands before Jesus, then if her desires are ultimately rooted in selfishness and sinfulness, we address the sin, not the situation. And by the way, the shoe is most often on the other foot in our marriage. That if you care about your husband enough, women, do you really want him to stand before God one day and be judged for sins that you've noticed for 20 years? Is that love? I don't think so. And so in marriage, here's what we have to recognize. If we recognize we're sinners married to sinners, you might write this down on your handout as a secondary point to this. Your job is to fight for your spouse's holiness. No one is writing that down, which really crushes my heart. I hope you have a really good memory. You need to fight for your spouse's holiness. And I'll tell you right now, fighting for your spouse's holiness does not bring immediate happiness. Because how many of us really like someone looking us in the eyes and telling us how we're sinful? Anyone enjoy that? Nope, I don't either, right? Despite the blessed soundtrack that played just now. No, we don't like it. But I'm telling you, Marriages that have a more stable form of happiness are marriages that focus on holiness before happiness, right? That's what we learn in our holiness paradigm. And so as a spouse, if we fight for our spouse's holiness, that will then lead to happiness. In fact, the Proverbs say this, don't they? They say that for a man, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman. You know what he's saying there? He says actually in other Proverbs that you could have the biggest mansion on planet earth, but if your wife's holiness is not addressed, you are an unhappy man. And I'll tell you what, I've met some men who have great homes in a terrible marriage, and that proverb is so, so true. Holiness is more important than happiness. Here's the third reality we have to embrace if we're going to have a healthy marriage in the context of a broken world. It's this, that my Best hope in marriage to a broken sinner in a broken world is God. If the main problem in our marriage that we can actually fix is our indwelling sin, then the greatest hope for our marriage is the salvation of Christ. Because only the salvation of Christ can defeat the power of sin in your life and in their life. I've had people ask, my wife and I, I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple that's getting married in November in Wichita. And um, I have people ask me, what, how, how on earth have you and your wife had a good marriage? They, they know us personally. They've seen us. And our marriage isn't perfect by any means. We bicker, we fight, we argue, we have disagreements, blah, blah, blah. But what I tell people like that is that marriage is really healthy, not because of a bunch of self-help tips. I don't really have any advice to offer someone about marriage who's not a Christian because I'm fundamentally convinced that what makes our marriage work is that Shelby loves Jesus 
and has accepted his power to overcome her personal sin. I'm trying to love Jesus, and I'm trying to receive his power to overcome my sin. And as we both overcome our sin, we naturally draw closer together. We'll talk about that more next week. In the same way that we cannot earn our place in heaven because we're all hopelessly sinful, we cannot make our marriages beautiful through self-effort alone. Our efforts fall short because we are broken sinners in a broken world. I love the words of Paul at the end of Romans chapter number seven. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And here's the truth. And this will really be something we unpack in all of our study is that marriages are fixed vertically before they are fixed horizontally. If indwelling sin is your greatest issue in your marriage, which the Bible says it is, then what you have to fix first is you in your God walk before you can fix what's going on with your wife or with your husband. Well, we have to recognize that at a foundational level, our difficulties in our marriage don't first come because we don't love one another enough. Listen, your problem is not your spouse doesn't love you enough. Because you know what First John tells us? Where does love for people come from? Love for God. In fact, John says, if a man loves not his brother, he doesn't love God. So wives, can I help you? Husbands, can I help you? There are issues in your marriage that are an outflow of you not loving your spouse enough. It's because actually, first and foremost, you don't love God enough. Because what the Bible's really clear about is if we love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, and soul, then we will love our neighbor as ourself. Marriages and relationships are fixed vertically before they're fixed horizontally. That's the same truth is with the church. A church that's not unified and loving, you know what the problem is? It's not that people need to compromise and, you know, make all these different amendments so that they can all come together around some preferential things. It's because people are selfish and don't love God. So if you want your marriage to be healthy, you need to fix the vertical relationship. And with that, God will fix the horizontal relationship. Now, why would Jesus say that the first commandment, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? He didn't just say that because he had a list of two things and he just chose to put one first. That in the mind of God, it has always been that loving God leads to a proper treatment of people. It wasn't just Jesus who said that comes first. The law of God in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy said that first. Because the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. And the last six have to do with our relationship with people. And we'll unpack this more next week. But here's how I like to picture marriage. It, marriage is like a triangle. And the spouses are at the bottom of the triangle and God is at the top. And so as both spouses move towards God, they themselves become closer together. And that's why Paul says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Because if you and your spouse don't share the same God, 
you will only achieve a certain level of closeness before you'll run into a wall. And the same is true if you are serving the God of self in a moment in your marriage. You can't grow closer to your spouse because you've got to fix the vertical stuff before you fix the horizontal stuff. Marriage is a joyful thing, but we have a marriage that could be joyful in a world that is broken by sin. And that is why we desperately need the grace of Christ to fix our sin. And we need a spouse that can help us see our sin so that we can then grow closer together. On every lesson, Lord willing, we're going to have on the back of your handout, there are two discussion questions. I want you to turn your handout over. Some of you refuse to take one coming in. but This is why you should take one. Is on the back side of your handout, there are two discussion questions. Here's what I, I believe, and I, I do this even in my premarital counseling now. What I teach, is this helpful? But what you and your spouse will talk about as a result of teaching, is this helpful? Because what you probably in this lesson are tempted to do is to see a lot of things your spouse does wrong. But you and your spouse need to have a conversation based on the truth of God's word that will help you both work through your own sin. Now I'm telling you, some of y'all are gonna ignore this and you shouldn't. You, I, I know some of you, you need this really bad. My heart's broken as I see marriages in our church. And I've given you two discussion questions that I think could help you. Um, I have four on my handout, so I don't remember which ones I gave you. I know one of them is this. To think about a recent conflict or argument you had and to identify in your own heart the sins that led to that conflict. The Bible says without pride, there is no contention. Meaning that every contention is the result of one or more people's pride. So what I want you to do is to self-identify a recent contention you had in your marriage and to label your sin and to talk to your spouse about it. The other one I think is that um, you need to give your spouse permission. This is the last one I think. To kindly address sin in your life. Some of you by your body language, by your reaction, by your pride in every other area of life, by your explosive temperament, you don't give your spouse permission to address your sin. But I do know that sometimes there's a little bit of strategy to discussing the sin of one another. If you want some advice on that, truly talk to Shelby Collins because I'm a proud person by nature and she does a good job knowing when and how. But what I want you to do is discuss with your spouse the answer to this question. If sin is creating problems in our relationship or in my life, the best way to help me see that is by, and I want you to tell your spouse how they can confront sin in your life without you becoming overly defensive. Because here's what I believe. The person who best sees your sin nature is your spouse. They see it more than you think. And you desperately need them to grow in Christ. But if you refuse that, you will be forever limited in the health of your marriage. And so I want you to give them the answer to that question. I want to pray and ask God to help you as you hopefully carry this out beyond this lesson and discuss with your spouse this week. I think a lot of healing 
through tough conversations can come as we do these things.